0: New Testament lesson is from Philippians 3, verse 4b through 14. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do: forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the gospel lesson is from John 12:1 through 8. He who was about to betray him said, "Why does this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor?" He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having been charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my bur- burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord."
1: Good morning. Uh, you'll see in the order of worship a note that during the <clears throat> last few weeks during the season of Lent we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent. <coughs> Excuse me, I have had a little bit of something in my throat this week, so bear with me. Uh, but the Psalms of Ascent are 15 psalms that are set apart in the overall psalms, and they were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem uh, for different feasts or times of worship. And so these psalms are unique in the sense that they were songs for the journey, songs to say and pray on one's own, but also to sing to each other, to encourage each other on the way. In this way, they are a gift from God, God's word given to us, that we may speak to God, that we may encourage one another. And this morning, our psalm is 130, Psalm 130. And in church history, this psalm has been noted numerous times especially resonates with people. Martin Luther in particular wrote a great deal about this psalm and calling it kind of the summary of the gospel of Christ, the good news of God. It is a psalm that we'll see in a moment in which begins in the depths of human sorrow, the depths of a, a human cry for help, but it concludes with a call to hope in the Lord. And what connects this depth, this pit, And the hope is the steadfast love of God. It is because of the steadfast love of God that the psalm can start in the depths, but end with cries of hope in our God. So let's look at our passage. This is Psalm 130. It's printed in your order of worship. You can follow there or follow in your Bible. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he would redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and we, we come as a people who confess that we need to hear from you. Lord, we need your word to come and to speak truth to us and not only allow us to see ourselves, but to see you and have hope in you. And so, Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you'd be with us, that we would hear and respond in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have noticed that there are four stanzas in our psalm, and those four stanzas will be the four kind of movements of the sermon. We see the first one is there's a desperate cry from the depths. The second stanza, there is a confession of the Lord as one who forgives. The third is a resolve to, to wait, to have faith, And fourth and finally, a testimony, a calling out to others, to hope in God. So we can start with the first one, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The psalm begins in the depths, it begins with an urgent cry for help, Lord, I'm about to go under, hear me, help me. We need to start where the psalm starts by asking what comes to our minds, what comes to your mind when we... Hear this phrase, the depths, the depths. Here's this idea of being sunk down, fallen in a pit. The bottom of my life has dropped out. No place to set my feet. I can't climb out no matter how much I try. The image of the depths, is it, it picks up at different parts in the scripture, usually has this imagery of, of water that's covering over us dangerous and deep water that's sweeping over us. Psalm 69 offers similar language. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. And the author of Lamentation, when he was looking out over the city of Jerusalem and how it was falling and being destroyed, as he was picturing and knowing that those he loved were being lost, a loss of security, no sense of way out, no certainty about the future. The author writes, Water closed over my head, and I said, I am lost. I called on you, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. Our psalm starts in a serious place, right? These are serious images and things to think about, and what I want us to to feel is that this metaphor is meant to be visceral. It's meant to resonate with our experience. And I assume that we all have our own understanding, our own memories of the fear and sorrow, the chaos, the anger of the depths. It could have to do with suffering, loss of our health, walking through the shadow of depression, Some type of job or evaluation that you've had not going the way you want it to go. Maybe the aging or even the loss of parents. Seeing our own anger hurt or push others away from us. Being mistreated by those we love, by a friend, the unfaithfulness of those who are close to us. The list could go on and on when we feel the depths. Those places where our efforts feel futile, where we feel painfully our limits, hoping just that the flailing of our arms and legs, we could picture the waters, right, the flailing of our arms and legs will just keep us from sinking lower. But if you're like me, we know such flailing is exhausting, searching for a foothold, and it's out of the depths that we cry. So the psalm opens with this cry about our condition, about our condition, but it also is a cry directed to the Lord. The psalm establishes a link between the ruler of all things and the depths of human experience. Think about this, right? It connects the one in the pit, the one flailing in the waters, overwhelmed, connects that person with the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so the psalm in the beginning asks this question, how are we to approach God? From where are you or from, am I to address God? And we can be foolish sometimes and we can think that the place that we're supposed to approach God, right, is from posture of obedience, a situation of prosperity, that I should only address one so important when I am suitably dressed or properly positioned. But that is not what the psalm invites us to see The psalm is a cry not from strength, but from weakness, not from abundance, but from what is lacking. And yet it is heard by our God. This crying from the depths echoes the cry from Exodus 2 when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God's word reads, during those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God, hearing their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. They groaned, they cried out, God listened, God remembered, God saw, and God understood. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And something interesting happens as we move from the first stanza to the second. Maybe you notice this, but this opening image of waters, the opening image of the depths sweeping over us, taking away our foothold, that image is now applied to our iniquities before God. The image of the depths speaks of our experience, suffering, hurt, loss, pain. But in the psalm here, And the depths is clearly connected to our iniquities, our acts of injustice, our unfaithfulness, our sin, our wickedness, our guilt before God. Suffering takes expression in many ways in our lives, but here the psalmist is crying out under the waves and the weight of his wrongdoing, of things being left undone. He sees it and he feels it, And it is like no place to stand. The water's rising as much as he searches no place for his feet to be. Lord, let your ears be attentive to the voice of the pleas of your mercy. Pleas for mercy. Second stanza moves us into the character of God. And we can think about our iniquities sweeping over us. One of the things that came to my mind was the opening chapters of the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome from the Apostle Paul. In the first chapter, he asks, what are people like? What are we like? Including himself. The scriptures say, we are filled with every kind of evil, selfishness, and hatred. Full of jealousy, fighting, lying, thinking the worst about each other. Gossip, saying evil things about each other being rude, conceited, bragging about ourselves, inventing ways to do evil, not obeying our parents. They are foolish people. They do not keep their promises, and they show no kindness or mercy to others. And Paul continues, especially to those who identify as religious, religious people even, reminding us that hearing God's law does not make people right with God. Just because you hear God's law doesn't make you right. If you think you can judge others, you are wrong, Scripture says. When you judge them, you are really judging yourself guilty because you have done the same things that they do. God judges those who do wrong, and we know that His judging is right. But when you judge those who do wrong, you do wrong yourself. Romans 3 concludes that no one is righteous, not even one. Some people might feel like those words are harsh, but another way is to say that they are true and honest about our hearts. No one is righteous, not even one. That conclusion is similar to what the psalmist confession says in the second psalm. If God marked our iniquities, none could stand. No one could stand if left to their own record, their own possession of Righteousness. Our footing will give away. Our footing will fail us if we are trusting or standing in our own ways. Who could stand on his or her own record? Who can stand on his or her own? The psalmist is asking us that question, wanting us to feel the weight of our own failures, but the transition as well. Who could stand? but with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. But with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. Suddenly a rope, suddenly a place to stand in the depths. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. It might be hard to admit, but we might not find forgiveness with others, in our marriages, with parents or family. We might not forgive find forgiveness with friends, coworkers, neighbors. Some will walk away. Some will hold things over us. Some will deem us unworthy to be forgiven or to have another chance. But with the Lord, but with the Lord God, there is forgiveness. God describes himself in the scriptures as the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is a wonder. This is a wonder. And if we hear anything this morning in the psalm, I want you to feel the wonder, not just the visceralness of the depths, but God delighting and forgiving those who know the depths. God's forgiveness is inclusive, covering all. God's forgiveness is not limited. It is for anyone and for any sin. God's forgiveness is vast whoever you are and whatever you have done or left undone. Returning to the language of Romans, God says that he has found a way for us to be right and forgiven apart from the law, apart from doing right or keeping our own record. And that way is through his son Jesus Christ. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but in Christ there is the free gift by God's grace of forgiveness and righteousness in God. This is the good news. O oh Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. I cry to you, you, Lord, because there is forgiveness with you." The confession of God's forgiveness leads us to the third stanza and an expression of faith. "If I know my depths and I know who God is, then I will wait. I will hope in the Lord. In the Hebrew language and throughout Scripture, we see that waiting and hoping are connected. The psalm invites us here to faith. The cry out from the depths is to cry out and trust, to entrust yourself to one who can meet you there. For we're in the depths when we are struggling, we have to ask, where will I look for my help? Here it is crying out saying, I will wait and I will hope in the Lord. And the image that is expressed here is the watchman waiting through the night. Now, I'd, I don't know you, I've never worked as a watchman or a security guard. Maybe you have, or maybe you're doing it right now. I guess it depends on where you're working, whether it's exciting or boring. But we can maybe picture, right, the security officer making rounds, the security officer sitting at the door to a building Or in the ancient world, the watchman who would often stand by the gate of the city or be up on the walls of the city, keeping watch through the night. And even though I haven't been a watchman, I, I imagine, and maybe you can too, that we can picture, we can imagine how anxious the watchman would be for the night to end, longing for the day to arrive. And the psalmist is saying here, just Picture that and say that even more than that longing, I long for God to come. I long for God to act more than the watchman longs for the morning. And and what does this image suggest? Well, I want us to think that the watchman waits. The watchman watches for the dawn, for the first light. But the turning of the earth, the energy of the sun the light of the dawn. These things are not in the power of the watchman. There's nothing the watchman can do to make dawn arrive. There's nothing the watchman can do to make the earth spin. The watchman's job is to wait and to watch. The arrival of the dawn is not in the power of the one keeping watch. He waits, he trusts, he trusts that the light will come and chase away the dark. As we gather here this morning, we, we all have different experiences with church, with religion, different experiences about faith. And this image of the watchman, one of the things that came to my mind that at least at some point earlier in my life when I was part of going to church, I understood church under mostly the categories of me being a good person. It's part of what you do if you're a good person, right? You go and you go to church, at least you go sometimes. that religion is about discipline. It's about doing what is right. And there's nothing wrong with doing what is right. But at least in my experience, religion and church became simply a part of the burden of life, part of another thing I have to take care of, part of another responsibility that shows whether I'm a good or bad. It becomes oppressive, another burden in life. And I share that with you, maybe you can relate, but I share that because this image is inviting us to something very different than that. It's not inviting us to look at our own strength or look at how church or religion or even God can be one more thing I add to all the different tasks I have to be successful. Rather, this is an image that invites us to turn away from our resources. I cannot bring the dawn. Nothing I do can make the light shine. So I am called to turn my attention, my my efforts to trust that God can do what I cannot do. And in this case, he can forgive me of my iniquities and lift me out of the pit and put my feet on rock. Things that I cannot do myself. When Paul was talking about the gospel that he preached to the church, he doesn't talk about it as a burden of a list of things you have to do now this week. But he says that what I preached and what I knew among you was Christ and him crucified. What he preached and what he wants us to know is that Christ was crucified for us, that he went into the pit to bring us out of it, to bring light into the darkness. Eight times in our psalm, you might mention that the Lord's name is mentioned. The Lord, God is the one who forgives sins, the one who comes to those who wait and hope. He's characterized by steadfast love and redemption, the one who will redeem Israel. God's forgiveness is not set in motion because I call to him. Rather, we are invited to call to God because he is one who does forgive. The one who has entered into the depths to lift us out. Our psalm ends the last stanza by turning the attention away from speaking to God to calling out to all of those gathered. O Israel, all you who are journeying to the temple, all you who are going to Jerusalem, hope in the Lord. The Psalms, have sent, one of the things I found very meaningful about them the last few weeks is that they are encouragements to us individually, but they are actually also pictures of crying out to each other, encouraging each other. Go, hope in God, hope in his steadfast love. <clears throat> Another thing that's interesting is to think about Jesus, that he prayed these Psalms himself when traveling to Jerusalem with his family as a child. They would have said, said, sung these or prayed these And when he goes with his disciples as an adult, they would have prayed these things together. Jesus would have prayed, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Jesus, out of the depths, depths of the cross, right? And he enters into the depths, showing the steadfast love of God, that he was nailed to the cross, that he in his body suffered our suffering, in his body entering into the depths, into the pit of no foothold any longer. Jesus in his own mouth, out of the depths I cry to you, Father. Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he said from the cross. But not only does he enter the depths with us to bear our suffering and our sin, but I also picture Jesus saying the last stanza, O Israel, hope in the Lord. O people of God, Hope in the Lord. Jesus himself saying to those who gather at Lincoln Square Presbyterian, you who gather, hope in the Lord in his steadfast love. And Jesus showing us his hands and his side, the places that the nails were, the spear went in, showing us the hesed, the steadfast love of God. Hope in God. For he is the one who has entered the depths with you. And with him there is forgiveness. With him there is steadfast love and redemption. Let us hear Jesus' call, not only as he joins us in the depths, but as he calls us to lift our heads to the one who meets us there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you, Lord, for your gracious word that acknowledges our suffering, that acknowledges our struggles and our sin, and then moves towards us in it. We pray that we'd find hope in life in your message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Almighty God and gracious Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit renews the church in every age.